We return, dear brethren, to our examination of Psalm 24 under the title of the King of Glory. This afternoon we come to what is the third treatment of the idea of manifesting the competition between God's categorical declaration that is given to us in the first two verses of Psalm 24 and its competition with the categorical denial. As the Lord allows, we will complete this particular phase of our studies, and if we do, we will reach a transitional moment that will enable us to move to the second section of Psalm 24. But we do wish this afternoon to continue to address what we're calling the modern myth movement, to manifest what it is and to counter it with the Word of God so that God's sheep can feel the effect of the Holy Spirit-inspired truths that are given to us in Psalm 24. In the year 1919, American school children between the ages of 9 and 12 were presented with a new English reading textbook written by the then well-known children's author Emily Miller Bolenius and illustrated by the equally well-known artist Mabel Betsy Hill. This book that these children opened for the first time in their schoolroom was entitled... The Boys and Girls Reader, the fifth edition, that being the one issued to the 9 through 12-year-old children. This book included some guidance as to its use, and with respect to what should be read on the 12th day of October, this book presented a reading on the life of Christopher Columbus. Emma Bolenius begins this section with a preface And in this preface, she makes the following claim. When Christopher Columbus lived, people thought that the earth was flat. They believed that the Atlantic Ocean was filled with monsters large enough to devour their ships and with fearful waterfalls over which their frail vessels would plunge to destruction. Columbus had to fight these foolish beliefs in order to get men to sail with him. He felt sure that the earth was round. He believed that by sailing westward, he would find a shortcut to India. No doubt these young children that were gathering in the year 1919, dear friends, in the American school system, no doubt they found that preface very engaging. The only problem with its colorfulness is that it is completely untrue. It is a myth. As Christine Garwood states in her book, Flat Earth, the history of an infamous idea, while making reference to one of the preeminent historians on the issue of this Flat Earth myth and how it was associated with the supposed Christian position that 
Columbus had to fight against in order to get the world to see and children to be educated that the world was in fact round over against what supposedly the Bible was saying in terms of it being flat. Well, Christine Garwood says, among the many versions of the flat earth myth, as historian Jeffrey Burton Russell has noted, is the fallacy that nobody knew it was round before Columbus discovered America in 1492. Now, I don't know what you were taught when you were working your way through the American school system, but perhaps even through this opening point in this study, God is already casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and is helping you to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus, to the obedience of truth. J.B. Russell himself, this prominent historian on the flat earth myth, further illumines how this myth became entrenched in academia and then in the popular consciousness, in his book on the subject entitled Inventing the Flat Earth, Columbus and Modern Historians. And he writes the following, Yet another reason why school books began to propagate the myth that Columbus was disproving and had to fight against the widely held Christian faith-based view of the flat earth world. One of the other reasons this was occurring was the influence of the most dramatic perpetrator of the flat error, Washington Irving, whose dates are 1783 to 1859. By the way, 1859 is a rather interesting year as it relates to Darwin, for those of you who are informed. I'm not trying to make some sort of dark and mysterious connection, but nonetheless, that's the year in which Washington Irving passed away. Whose romantic tale of Columbus the hero swayed all before him. Let me add this remark of Christine Garwood as she gives a little more context and you will see what Russell is driving at here. And I am using these concentrated quotations to present the issue of the flat earth myth to you and enabling you hopefully to see how it got traction and how it is still commonly effervescing within the public consciousness that indeed in the Middle Ages, in Spain, throughout Europe, there was a general belief in the earth being flat and Christians in particular were propagating this idea and Columbus had to fight against it. All of that is a myth. Christine Garwood says, as Jeffrey Burton Russell has noted, the tale which has gradually infiltrated itself into the place of fact was widely disseminated by Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle author Washington Irving as a part of his The Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus, published in 1828. In other words, when a true historian studies this thought that there was a widespread 
belief in the earth being flat in Columbus Day. And once again, he had to fight against the church and he had to fight against these concepts in order to get men even to sail because everybody thought you're going to go off the edge of the world. The one who propagated that idea, historians discover, because it was not held in the Middle Ages, widely speaking, and in the writings of the church fathers and in church ministers throughout European history, they clearly speak of the earth being a globe, spherical, round, something in that direction. But it was a biography of Christopher Columbus written by the same man who wrote Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, who was in the habit as a humorist to expressing his taste for teasing the public with clever mixtures of fiction and fact. Now, my dear friends, what I've just relayed to you, you can discover on your own by doing your own research if you wish, and you will see that I am relaying facts to you. That this whole viewpoint that was propagated and seriously presented in a school book to children, as a matter of fact, it was the school system, it was the secular side of human society that was propagating the myth, not the church. And so there's an adage that was working then that holds true to this day, and it can be expressed in these words, create a belief in the theory and the facts will create themselves. Now, we must remind you that the facts are in quotation marks. They are not true facts. But if you get a theory to be believed in the general populace, then sure enough, for the saving of face, if for nothing else, the facts will begin to accumulate. And as a consequence, we get many artifacts that are constantly within the world of academia, scholarship, universities, churches, etc. Among them, as it relates to this particular myth, is the children's poem that unfortunately deludes as much as it delights. And it sounds like this. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He took three ships with him too and called aboard his faithful crew. Mighty, strong, and brave was he, and he sailed across the sea. Some people thought the world was flat. Can you even imagine that? Well, you would have to imagine it because it wasn't true. So it had to be a figment of your imagination propagated by they who wish to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and are a part of what the Bible describes as a world that lies in wickedness. And while that may seem to be a negative characterization of the world in which you wish to live and move and have your being and enjoy the flowers and the birds and the lovely sunrise and sunset, it is nonetheless right that in the house of Almighty God, we relay to you that the Bible itself says the whole world lies in wickedness. You should therefore be suspicious in a healthy sense of the lies that are propagated through and 
within this wicked situation. So when it comes to this concern that we're dealing with, the protection of the opening section of Psalm 24, that is a categorical declaration. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, which in the Greek and perhaps in the Hebrew as well, certainly in the Greek Septuagint translation, it is the idea of the arrangement of everything and everybody that dwells in it belongs to the Lord. This is an exposition, if you will, an enlarging or a restatement even of Genesis 1, that in the beginning God created. And we've been expressing to you that now there is shade that is very frequently cast upon those verses. And just as with the young children in the American schools that experienced a lowering of their sense of the education of the Middle Ages, that period of time, and experienced a slanderous viewpoint of the position of the Christian churches at large, in which they were supposedly opposing science at every turn and were effectively dunces as it related to any sort of sensical or sensible orientation to the world. Ironically, those who today are pointing to the Genesis account as being a myth, they are the ones, so frequently, scholarship, universities, colleges, academia in general, they are often the ones that are perpetrating and propagating outright mythology. That comes from the connection of the word myth and logos, by the way. And so much that they teach is mythological. Their rational presentations, their knowledge, as Paul says, is falsely so-called. It is a myth. It is a tale. It is not true. It may have the ring of science to it, but nonetheless, it is a myth. And this is the case with the myth of evolution. Recall with me, as we concluded our study last Sunday, we were emphasizing that the scriptures themselves warn the believer against believing in myths. Now, if indeed Genesis 1 is a myth, then Paul is telling us, don't believe your own Bible. You cannot see it any other way. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4 says, do not give heed to, in the Greek, muthos translated in the ESV as myths. Don't give heed to them. Well, if we're going to be consistent, and if seminary scholars, alongside of their secular counterparts in the scientific community at large, if they're going to conclude, whether they get their views from a Washington Irving or a Charles Darwin or whomever else, but if they're going to nonetheless put in their textbooks and propagate the idea far and wide that this statement from Genesis chapter 1 and Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's, that that is a myth, then we are in quite a pickle, aren't we? Our entire Bible, our entire gospel seems to deflate 
in our very presence, and our hearts deflate accordingly, and we lose the sense of the fear of God, the sense of His awesomeness, the sense of all that God is seeking to do for our lives, and addressing us as our Creator, who is seeking to reconcile we sinners back into fellowship with Him so that we can participate in His kingdom. Now, I've just expressed to you in short version the message of Psalm 24. It begins with the categorical declaration in verses 1 and 2. It then moves into the conditional invitation. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In verses 3 through 6, we've expressed before that indicates that easy access to God is no longer available because of the entrance of sin. But God nonetheless makes himself available if we meet the conditions. We will look into this more thoroughly when we get to the second section. But I want to also speak to you about the final section, verses 7 through 10, that speak of kingdom exaltation. Dear brothers and sisters, the creator is going to come back to his house. Every house is builded by some man, but God built everything. And he is going to come back to his house and establish his glorious presence and his kingdom. He is going to decorate his home, namely the earth, in the way that pleases him. And he's going to reign in a righteous manner throughout this earth. And in order for us to be a part of that, we need to understand him in the way that Psalm 24 teaches. And what I'm here addressing and laboring to deal with is the reality that if the first section, if the categorical declaration in your spirit is either categorically denied because you view it as a myth or in some scale of doubt, you reflect upon God as the creator. There's some question mark in your spirit. Then, dear brothers and sisters, the rest of God's word to you is going to be in a similar fashion, weakened and proportionally not powerful. Why is it that we need to address this myth association? Not now with Columbus, not now with the Christian churches of the Middle Ages and the writings of the, let's say, early church fathers all the way down through the Renaissance period. Why do we need to address this issue? Dear brethren, it is because the custodians of the sacred texts, your Bible, the Hebrew scrolls, if you will, are too often imposters. Jesus uses the language, at least in the King James Bible, of hirelings. Do you remember with me that Jesus states in John chapter 10, that there are some who present themselves as shepherds, but they did not come through the door. They leaped up through the university process and jumped over the fence, as it were, and they have made their way in among God's people, and they are taken to be educated and well-accomplished, and they bring direction to the churches of Jesus Christ. But John chapter 10 and verse 12 records Jesus is saying that whenever some competition enters into the field, whenever the activity of the wolf 
comes among the sheep, the hirelings do not contend with the wolf. They find some way of extracting themselves from that particular battle and they expose the sheep to danger. Dear brothers and sisters, this has been the case in Christianity for some time. And therefore, I'm wanting to stress to all of our hearts that if we don't get the myth message out of our system, then you will never fully appreciate God's system of truth. If you allow the myth message to infect the Genesis account, it will also infect the temple account of Psalm 24 and ultimately your belief in the kingdom account of verses 7 through 10. Now, I should not make these claims that the custodians of the sacred text, in other words, ministers within the religious communities, have conducted themselves as hirelings. They have not been in the temple protecting the Ark of the Covenant against those that have thrust themselves in an antichrist fashion into the very sanctuary of God, as did Uzziah. Where are the Azariahs that are rising up? Where are the 80 attendants with Azariah, tasked with protecting God's word, which already gives us the answer to the question of origins? It's already in the box. Where are they who are protecting this sacred space? Well, we must take a look at some of the ministers that are within the Holy of Holies, as it were, so that I can show you that these are not ad hominem, reckless remarks that I am making. These are true statements about the state of affairs currently. I thought I would first present to you what I will call, truthfully, but without any venom, I will nonetheless call Jewish scribal hirelings, by which I mean, in this case, custodians of the Old Testament. I'm not here speaking of Messianic Jews. I'm not here speaking of Jewish Christians. I have one example by which to demonstrate this reality to you as it relates to Jewish religious leaders who we can truthfully state should still be protecting the sacred Jewish scrolls. Even if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're still tasked with being custodians of God's word. But take these remarks from Dr. Rabbi Alon Goshen Gottstein. He is the founder and director of the Elijah Interfaith Institute in Israel. That itself, if you look it up, is a very curious organization. Listen to his statements about the Genesis account. And I would like you to note that his opening remarks are sound, they are in some respects profound, and they begin to open your heart in an edifying way to appreciate what Genesis is all about. But then it will be mixed with the claim that Genesis, after all, is mythical, and as a result, we get this synchristic form of calf creation, as it were, around which the people of God are celebrating, as they think, the God of the universe 
who is not the true God of the Bible. These religious leaders say, these be thy God, O Israel. These, this be thy God, O Christian church. But they are weaving together and they are mixing in secular science with the sacred text, dear brothers and sisters. And so you feel your heart drawn to some extent through some of their remarks toward an appreciation for what they're saying. But then, as I'm going to demonstrate, they mix in some poison in the pot. And as a result, it is a very dangerous potion that they are serving. So hear these remarks from this Jewish rabbi. He says, Revelation begins with creation. And its position at the outset of the biblical narrative may be taken to indicate that all that follows, history, law, religious experience, derives its meaning from a thought pattern arrived at by pondering the fact and story of creation. I would happily read that over and over again and expand upon it in a study all of its own. That statement thus far is profound and beautiful and true to the way hermeneutically that the text should work. God has placed this declaration at the beginning of Genesis. It is repeated in Psalm 24, which is why we're talking about this, but it's a declaration. It is not an empirical proof. It is a presuppositional statement. In the beginning, God created. And you must take that opening statement that is revelation and recognize that's the way all understanding works. That's the way all history, all law, all religious experience is mediated to us when we appreciate that single remark that God is the creator of everything and everything else is therefore of a different ontological status. It is creature, not creator, derived, not original, Dependent, not sovereign. But following that beautiful remark, our rabbi goes on to say, when we speak of creation, we are not essentially... Don't you just love these adverbial qualifiers that the devil is so good at using? He's good at using language. The Holy Spirit is an expert at it, but the devil tries his hand as well. He has a certain poetic element to him. And poieo in Greek means to make. He tries to make stuff up through his use of language, as we well know. These are all facts, dear brothers and sisters. These are not trivial observations. That insertion of just that adverbial modifier, essentially, it throws you off track in the way that your brain is processing what he's saying. So he says, when we speak of creation, we are not essentially in the realm of physics. Ancient or modern? The average reader is thinking, well, now, I don't really think Genesis is a physics book text as such. And if you're thinking that it's organized in some sort of Aristotelian or some other, you know, ancient physics document, you know, you're saying, well, that's kind of true, isn't it? He goes on to say, we are making a statement of religious thought. Nor do we view creation merely 
as the first link in a chain of historical events. It is rather an event whose meaning transcends the historical process. Well, dear brothers and sisters, what you're hearing here is a sort of Jewish Jesuitism in which he's saying, isn't the opening statement of Genesis glorious, but he's got his finger crossed behind his back because he's in league with secular science and he dare not say that it is revelation and it is true because he doesn't want to be canceled or shamed or lose face in academia. And so he begins to just sort of shift things around and say, when we talk about creation, we're talking about religious thought, not necessarily a historical event. This is like Jewish neo-orthodoxy, where the historical element isn't necessarily critical. It may be true, it may not be true, according to Karl Barth. What is important is the concept. It transcends history. And many within the seminaries, within churches... Whether or not they are directly taught these things, if the man behind the pulpit himself does not believe in a young earth, six-day creation by Almighty God, it definitely finds its way through not just what he preaches, but his own life and how seriously he takes this Almighty God and how that is then mediated to your lives. And so what I'm saying is these remarks of Bart and these Jewish concepts I'm reading to you here, And I'm not saying there aren't Orthodox Jews that would reject this. That's not my point. My point is to show that there is a prevalent view that aligns itself with what this rabbi is saying in these remarks. But to finish what I started to say, when it's said that creation and the account in Genesis transcends history, once again, what happens is they who are affected by good words and fair speeches, they begin to think, oh, praise the Lord. You know, I used to think it was just straightforward talk, but thank you, pastor, and thank you, theologian, for helping me to read that it transcends history. And now you spend more time thinking about the mystery of the text and all of that instead of just feeling the raw presence of God, the simplicity that God is confronting you through the Bible, just raw holiness, which is what we need in order to take seriously our need for consecration, in order to recognize when he comes back as the king of kings, you won't be thinking of him as a mythological figure then. I'll guarantee you that much. So I'll follow from that quotation with an evangelical seminary hireling. Again, I don't say these things with venom, with carnal denigration. I state these things because it is the status of things. Here is an interview that was presented in Christianity Today. This edition was some time back. That is, it wasn't one just in the last couple of years, which in part I chose so as to manifest how long this poison has been in the pot and has infected so much around us. And I'm showing you that they who should be protecting the sheep These shepherds, these rabbis, these supposedly evangelical ministers, these seminary professors that should be protecting the sheep, they're not even protecting the sacred texts. How can you protect the sheep if you don't protect the Word of God? If you act like a hireling when the latest scientist with his degrees enters into the fold, as it were, and begins to present some compelling idea that casts shade against the Word of God. 
And instead of standing up and maybe risking your reputation and using truth as your defense, by which I'm stating I'm not suggesting that we shut our minds off and we don't allow ourselves to reflect on any empirical evidence that comes our way. But what I'm saying is you ought to at least stand up with the tools of truth and require that the scientific community operate with facts and not myths because they are so often caught red-handed propagating myths left and right. Anyway, Christianity Today, a magazine that displays for its readers the state of Christianity. In an article entitled Christian Colleges teach about creation. An interview with Jack Haas and Richard Wright, both of them professors at Gordon College, not too far from here in the Wenham, Massachusetts area. The interviewer's name is David Singer. And then you have these two gentlemen, Richard Wright, a seminary professor, but professor of biology at Gordon College, and Dr. Jack Haas, who is chairman of the chemistry department in a Christian college. David Singer asks Dr. Jack Haas, what is your own approach in teaching origins? For your information, Dr. Jack Haas is our example of a faithful minister, a faithful Azariah, who is defending the sacred space. And he says, in response to the question, what is your own approach in teaching origins? He says, first of all, I look at origins from a theistic perspective. And at no point in the discussion do I talk about chance and randomness. I continually emphasize a creating and sustaining God involved in every intimate detail of every moment. The same question was asked of his colleague in the same Gordon College, a certain Dr. Richard Wright. He says, in my core course, when I talk about evolution and creation... I present the various viewpoints held by Christians. You see how liberal, how open-minded this professor is. You see how, relatively speaking, he is more loving and kind and considerate and not so close-minded and narrow. That is very possibly the feel that emanates in the classroom. He goes on to say, my desire in doing this is to make very clear to the students that there is no single orthodox Christian approach to origins and creation. I suppose we should read in between the lines, not even God's position is orthodox, according to this author. This, and he is an author, we'll get to that in a moment, but this professor. Christians need not feel constrained. Hath God said, you don't need to feel constrained to reach total agreement on this subject. I present some of the viewpoints of fiat creation, F-I-A-T. It's the idea that God just spoke it and it came to pass. We ought to call it biblical creation or scriptural creation, something like that. I present the viewpoints of fiat creation, of progressive creation, basically a variation of theistic evolution, 
and theistic evolution, he says, I try to present these fairly. I doubt he does, by the way. I doubt he shows the mythological basis of evolution and theistic evolution for that matter. But in any, in any event, he goes on to say, and I tell the students that they certainly should not assume anything about a person's Christian commitment on the basis of his approach to creation or evolution. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but it is very likely that Dr. Richard Wright in his day, and I believe he's still alive, um, also pastored a church. And he's not alone. He's teaching men in the ministry or, or men that will wind up in the ministry. And they will have this enlightened view that they will then bring to the churches. And then they bring to the public square if they're well-educated, which these men are, and I commend them for being well-educated. But then they come to the public square to have a debate with Richard Dawkins or whomever. And they, they espouse these halfway house views. And they're still addicts for the lies of the devil. They haven't been recovered yet. They haven't fully gone through their withdrawals of the God of this world who blinds the mind of humanity, lest you would believe the gospel. This same Dr. Richard Wright is the author of a school textbook that was quite popular, entitled Biology Through the Eyes of Faith, amazingly. It was published in the year 2002. And he writes the following, Very commonly, Christian apologists who are critiquing Darwinianism will claim that evolution is a theory on the verge of collapse. Its credibility is shrinking. Its support in the scientific community is flagging. It is a sinking ship as Philip Johnson claims. The evidence for it is poor, and only the prior philosophical commitment of most scientists to naturalism keeps it from sinking out of sight. That is absolutely the case. That is absolutely the situation. And we're potentially in a place where there could be some cleansing in the temple, if you remember what we're referring to with Uzziah and the way in which that intersects with Isaiah chapter 6. You'll have to listen to previous teachings. But we're in a situation where maybe we can get this temple that has been desecrated cleansed so that worshipers can come back to the living God instead of an empty place where the word it can't even be found, where there's no Shekinah glory, where people don't fall on their face before the living God and lift up their hearts and hands and worship Him as their Creator. We're in a situation where some of the leprosy is being addressed and we're trying to get it out. But then, shall I call Him Antichrist? I guess I won't for the moment, but what is motivating him to go on and say this seminary professor, Mr. Wright, who is so wrong on this issue, he says, let me say, and he doesn't just say, let me say, he says, let me say loud and clear. In other words, rather than get on the rooftops and holler out the gospel message, that which I have heard in secret, I'm going to declare on the rooftops. He wants to get up on the rooftops and counter the statements of a Philip Johnson or of a Stephen Meyer or of a William Dembski or Jonathan Wells or any of these men who in various ways are contributing to some of the cleansing of this mythology that has infected everything in this globe. He says, let 
me come to the rescue of the evolutionary gospel. Let me say loud and clear, nothing could be further from the truth. The support for evolution as a scientific theory is stronger than ever. And then in a manifestation of sad irony and an incredible lack of self-awareness, he says in the next sentence, it is as if anything said often enough will be believed whether it is true or not. And so, as I've been stressing, we do need to address, as we are, relative to the exegeting of Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, relative to ensuring that its statements are felt powerfully in your heart, we do have to do the work of the Azariah ministry and get these Uzziahs who have forced their way into the very sacred space of the seminaries and churches, let alone the public square, and they insert themselves into God's own story as if they are king of the temple. Do you remember with me that the Bible says that Antichrist will exalt himself against the knowledge of God, against God and everything that is called God, and set himself up as the source of understanding? And it does seem, dear brothers and sisters, in keeping with John's remark in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, even now there are many Antichrists. That was probably in about 90 AD, roughly speaking, for the Johannian epistles. He says, even now there are many antichrists. I would argue that they are more voluminous. They're more in number presently than they were even in John's day. Take this remark about the rise of antichrists from the English minister John Jewell, who states, antichrist shall appear not when he wills, but he shall be revealed in his time. Now, even that assertion that John Jewell makes is a beautiful clarification so that you recognize when the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 6 that Antichrist will be revealed in his time, it doesn't mean that Antichrist will set the time. It means when the fullness of time, when the appropriate time in God's program arises, then Antichrist, the Antichrist, will be manifest. Jewel goes on to say, his time is the time of darkness, when shepherds and the guides of the people shall be careless, not protecting the sacred space, when the word, the word of God, shall be loathed, looked down on, when the light shall be put out, when superstition shall reign. When ignorance shall have the upper hand, when the creature shall not be known or distinguished from the Creator, when there shall be no fear of God, no regard of godliness, then shall Antichrist come. Then he shall show himself. This is his time. Jewel writes those words at some point in the 16th century. And what I'm suggesting to you very seriously, that as you hear this message, and you can avail yourself of this same topic through the many books that address these issues, the resources are abundant that will acquaint you with the battle that is going on at the point of creation. But even though the resources are relatively available, do not lower... In your estimation, 
how serious this conflict is. Because what I'm saying to you is, while you may still retain a straightforward faith in the Scripture's statements, many others who attend churches do not. And that is a symptom of a larger problem, which involves the rise of many antichrists all throughout education, all throughout politics, all throughout the neighborhood, and in the very sacred spaces themselves, once again, the seminaries, the churches, where at a minimum there's doubt. At a minimum, you see these statements as wonderful and philosophically interesting. I mentioned to you last Sunday the speeches of Jordan Peterson, among others, that relay an engaging orientation to the book of Genesis, but renders it nonetheless into the category of myth. Well, I'm trying to state that when that is leprously working its way throughout everything, it's in that context that the Antichrist is going to arise. Now, I want you to know that this opposition that we're talking about is real, but it isn't sovereign, which is to say it is not more real than God's ultimate sovereign control. I want you to know that God was, as it were, obviously well aware that this would transpire, and indeed the Scriptures themselves predict a coming apostasy, and that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived themselves. A man by the name of Alan Spence wrote a seminary dissertation in which he's interacting with some of the views of the Puritan theologian John Owen, and he speaks to this reality that the opposition of the Antichrists and the science and Gnosticism, etc., that is in competition against the Word of God, that while that is very real, it is not sovereign. Alan Spence writes the following, In the beginning, God had made all things exceedingly good before sin entered into the picture and manifested His glory in the harmony and beauty of the universe. Man had been made so that in him, God might receive the glory that he aimed at in and by the whole inanimate creation. But he permitted the entrance of sin, whereby this whole order and harmony were disturbed. The important idea here is that God permitted it. This helps us, though we're not at the end of our message yet, but this observation itself helps us to transition into the second major section of Psalm 24, which is the temple period, where God, as it were, after sin enters and spreads its leprosy, ultimately everywhere throughout creation, you recall that the creation itself was made subject to vanity, emptiness, or futility, not willing, not willingly, in other words, not because creation sinned, but man sinned, and ceased to set his eyes upon the glory that God had created in the earth and to use that as a basis upon which to instill worship for Almighty God and health for the entire human family. When sin entered, leprosy spread throughout the entire sacred space of creation. But God protected a space. Ultimately, 
The temple speaks to that. It is a protected sacred space with walls and requirements for access so that nonetheless we can still find the living God. And dear brothers and sisters, I mean, find the living God somewhere on the earth. And dear brothers and sisters, that's what the church of Jesus Christ should be. Should be a place where whatever is going on out in the culture, in terms of the leprosy of sin, you ought to be able to come into the house of Almighty God and still meet with the Lord and experience cleansing from the leprosy of the language of those who are opposing God. And so... John Owen himself says, God had from all eternity ordained the recovery of all things into a better and more permanent state than that which was lost through sin. That's the kingdom period, dear brothers and sisters. Now, that is a beautiful remark about where we are in this redemptive story of Almighty God that you don't have to despair that sin has brought ruin and sorrow and pain and suffering and death and confusion and blindness and darkness into creation itself and in particular into the being and psyche of that which was made in God's image, mankind. You don't have to despair because there's a gospel. There's a temple period that is sovereignly set forth in order to recover All of those who will come to God and ultimately creation itself will be recovered from this awful situation. But I want you to contrast that beautiful vision that the Bible presents with this declaration from the atheists. Because as we begin to decline the hill of this message to its landing point, I do want to speak afresh that this competitive warfare is not going to go away just because we had a series of teachings on this matter. It's not going to go away because various books have been written that address the mythology of evolution in a very effective manner. Over against the hopeful message of the gospel that speaks of restoration for humanity, we have remarks like this from atheists In this case, from Richard Dawkins, as he writes in the Free Inquiry magazine, he says, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. It's a very strong remark by a man who is purported to be well-educated, rational, a guide to our students as it relates to how to understand the world. I suppose he feels, obviously, that this strident remark is necessary to combat the creationists, but then that just makes my point that there is still a real battle between the Uzziahs and the Azariahs. It's an ongoing battle, brothers and sisters. And think about it when Richard Dawkins makes that remark that anyone who believes that evolution is not true is ignorant, stupid, whatever. How does that reflect on the Apostle John? Let's start with that. The Apostle John says all things were made by Jesus and without him was not anything made that was made. How does that reflect on the Apostle Paul? 
We're told in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, reading from the ESV, For by Him, that is Jesus, en auto, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. Is John ignorant? Stupid? Is Paul as well ignorant as stupid? What should we think about the Apostle Paul quoting the very psalm that we are seeking to understand and apply to our lives, Psalm 24, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Obviously reflecting the teaching of Genesis chapter 1. But if you take what Richard Dawkins is pushing forth, either in its full dose or you break the pill in half or in quarters and you just put a little piece of it down your throat, you're going to step away, as so many do, obviously Dr. Richard Wright does, and you're going to start saying, well, John and Paul, they weren't quite well enough informed. You follow me? You're not going to necessarily say they're insane, but you're getting kind of close. Instead of realizing that the one who's telling myths is Richard Dawkins. The one who was telling myths about Christopher Columbus and probably still do in the school systems are the teachers and the academics, not the preachers behind the pulpit who tell you that, as a matter of fact, it has never been the case that the church has propagated a flat earth perspective. Well, let's listen to the Old Testament and listen to the voice of prophecy. This is God himself speaking. What shall we say about God himself? What is Dawkins? who barges into the sacred space of the question of origins, what is he saying about God when we have it recorded in Isaiah 55 and verse 12? By prophecy, the Lord speaks and says, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens. That may well be relevant to scientific investigation, by the way. You worry about red light drift and all the rest of it. If God said he stretched out the heavens, well, who knows how that all worked. You don't. And now, even in the field of astronomy, by the way, certain scientists are seeking to apply the insights of the Einstein theory of relativity and propose the idea that the speed of light may not be uniform in all situations and throughout all time. The reality is, is these men don't know. That's the reality. They don't know, as we're going to get to in just a moment before we conclude today. But God knows and he's telling us, I stretched out the heavens with my own hands and all their hosts have I commanded. Now I can hear somebody in my ear saying, did he literally use hands? No. And we understand that because we're intelligent creatures made in the image of God. We understand the proper use of poetic device. And when you use the scriptures as a system of truth and you simply interpret it with natural hermeneutic principles, then you arrive at a proper understanding of these remarks, just like you do, secularists, whenever you read Hesiod, The Iliad and the Odyssey or Shakespeare or Mark Twain, you do the exact same thing. 
Homer is who I was searching for instead of just the title of his poetic works. In verse 18 of the same chapter, Isaiah 45, the Lord says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord, and there is no other theory that can stand in that place. There is none else. It's the word of God, brothers and sisters. You see, this categorical declaration of Psalm 24 is the key to all sound thinking in religion, in philosophy, in epistemology, in politics, in science, in morality. Sound thinking in all the spheres of life is a byproduct, is a consequence of getting the creation story right. You need this categorical declaration to get anything right in your life. Children, obey your parents because he's the creator and he has every right to lovingly, but nonetheless authoritatively tell us how to live the life that he created. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit yourselves onto your own husbands as in the Lord. And society goes crazy when they hear that remark. You're going to have to put off the myths and not listen to the Uzziahs who barge in and try to tell us how to live life. Where are the Azariahs that protect the holy space when the wolves come in? Biblical creationism is important because it is the only system that answers the basic questions of life and gives us significance greater than ourselves. It should be clear to all Christians that creationism and evolution are mutually exclusive and stand in opposition to one another. Let me let you know that the atheists agree with what I just stated. These two perspectives are mutually exclusive. Dawkins says you're insane if you believe in creation. The battle is on. Who's on the Lord's side? And how fully are you on the Lord's side? That's what Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2 are asking you. There's no point to get to verse 3 and 6. And you'll never be, I assure you, in verses 7 through 10, if you don't declare yourself to be on the Lord's side as it relates to His categorical declaration. So look across the valley and see that there are those that oppose us. We wish they did not, but they are there. And we do have to engage them. Take, for example, this remark from an atheist evolutionist, Massimo Pigliucci. He is the professor of ecology and evolution at the State University of New York. And he says, No serious scientific discussion of any topic should include supernatural explanations. Since the basic assumption of science is that the world can be explained entirely in physical terms without recourse to divine entities. Don't bring your creation, supernatural explanation into the conversation. We reject it completely. It should not be there. Dear brothers and sisters, in the language of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11, do not let these men steal your crown. When the categorical denial of the categorical declaration 
begins to make its effect in the culture, we wind up with a categorical collapse of civilization. Because getting creation right is absolutely critical to getting all of life right. C.S. Lewis says this about evolution. The central radical lie in the whole web of falsehood that now governs modern civilization is the theory of evolution. True believers in evolutionism believe that evolution explains everything. The stars, the galaxies, the solar systems, the planets, and all life from amoeba to humans, from particles to people, from molecules to men. I added some other designations. And incidentally, and Lewis probably knew this even in his day, but didn't state it, it explains the psyche, the brain. You don't really have a soul. You're a natural being. And you can be fixed by counselors that believe in an evolutionary process. And maybe there is a collective unconsciousness in a Jungian fashion, but they will help you to recover from your sickness, not through the introduction of God's divine truth and a maker who will sort you out, but through an understanding in a scientific method of the historical processes that have infected your psyche. This is absolutely rampant in our day. Everybody's got to have a psychologist in order to get healthy. Because the categorical declaration has so much shade on it that few take it seriously, but it's very, very central to how life is lived well. Do you know that culture was not always this way? It was not always fused with the evil leaven of evolution. Incidentally, if you want a nice little, may I say it, Freudian slip for evolution, just call it evil leaven. It's not too far away. Evil leaven evolution. Take, for example, this remark from the former evolutionist, Dean Kenyon. He received his conversion in 1976, but he was an evolutionary biologist. And while he was an evolutionary biologist, he wrote a textbook called Biochemical Predestination. I mean, there's a sarcasm that's in the title I can't digress into. But this was once a standard university textbook And he, in that textbook, as an evolutionist, acknowledges what I'm saying. So take it from their own research and their own admittance that evolution was not always throughout culture. Scientists were not always evolutionists, is what I'm saying. So he says, Dean Kenyon does, we tend too easily to forget that creationist views of origins predominated in scientific circles before the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859. The leading scientists of Europe and the United States were creationist scientists and got along quite well, by the way. And they defended their views with scientific evidence and argument. But now, they who have arisen since 1859 began to infiltrate into the sacred space of the question of origins. And there weren't enough Azariahs. Samuel Wilberforce did not do so well in his own day. There were enough Azariahs to protect the sacred space. Have you ever heard of the Scopes trial? There were not enough effective Azariahs to protect the sacred space. And so these arrogant Uzziahs have just made their way throughout the scientific community, and now everyone thinks that if you're not an evolutionist, you must be insane. You can't even think logically. 
the grandson of Thomas Huxley, Julian Huxley himself, an evolutionist and eugenicist, says the first point to make about Darwin's theory is that it is no longer a theory, but a fact. No serious scientist would deny the fact that evolution has occurred, just as he would not deny the fact that the earth goes around the sun. What I'm displaying to you, dear brethren, and these quotes are intended to make the case in a relatively concentrated and brief manner, I'm manifesting that the evolutionists themselves, when they're honest, will tell you that the scientific field was once occupied by creationists, and they did a lot of good science. They started the whole thing. But now Huxley, who now stands in his day, that is, stood in the scientific community, and he says evolution is a fact. And anybody doing science who thinks otherwise is as crazy as someone who does not believe that the earth goes around the sun. But you see, dear friends, Julian Huxley and Richard Dawkins and these other scientists, they are not speaking as objective thinkers. Very truthfully, they are speaking as converts to the religion of evolution. These are the remarks of religious zealots, and the cult is rather large. For example, so that you don't think that that remark is too extreme, follow this line of rational support to the claim I just made. Richard Dawkins, in a book entitled The Selfish Gene records the response of an eminent zoologist, one G.G. Simpson. Dawkins records his response to the basic questions of life. What is the purpose of life? What is man? Those forms of questions. And Simpson says, the point I want to make now is that all attempts to answer that question before 1859 are worthless and we would be better off if we ignored them completely. Is this man a scientist or a religious fanatic? You're hearing the remarks of a man who is invested in a religious way in atheism to make the claim that the answers to life in any thought patterns or any conversations that occurred before 1859 and are not within the influence of evolution are a waste of time and be better off we had no history whatsoever. I suppose that means the Socratic dialogues and philosophy and every other form of information, let alone the scriptures, until the glorious revelation of the golden tablets in a Joseph Smith form showed up through Darwin's writing Nobody had any truth in the world. It's like a religion. Dear brothers and sisters, this kind of statement. Richard Dawkins says the following in a debate setting between himself and John Lennox. He says this, Dawkins does, I lost my faith for good from nominal Anglicanism, which he doesn't state. He just says, I lost my Christian faith, or I lost my faith, but he was an Anglican nominally. Let me read his remark. He said it, not me. I lost my faith for good at about the age of 15 or 16. 15 
or 16. That was because I discovered Darwinianism. I recognized that there was no good reason to believe in any kind of supernatural creator. And my final vestige of religious faith disappeared when I finally understood the Darwinian explanation for life. Here's a man who was reassigned, not in this case his gender, but his entire Genesis concept. He allowed himself to reassign himself at the age of 15 because he got into his hands a textbook by Charles Darwin. Well, I recognize that people have been influenced and many biographies have as a feature of individuals' lives, especially what you have as a genre. Intellectual biographies will tell the story of how they read this, that, or the other thing. And it deeply affected their life. And sometimes that turns out, well, George Whitfield read Henry Scrugel's work, which eludes me at the moment as to what the entire title is. But And he also read Matthew Henry on his knees, Whitfield did. He would pray over it and read, over, read it as he was on his knees. But, but The Rise and Progress of the Soul, I think, is Henry Scrugel's volume. So what I'm saying is Whitfield, you might say, well, Whitfield read something when he was young and it powerfully affected his life and gave him a trajectory for the rest of his existence. And I would agree with you. And I would say that's religious, not scientific. That's a religious conversion. You've heard of Pilgrim Progress, this wonderful allegory written by John Bunyan. Well, time does not allow me to get long-winded or poetically eloquent on an altered version of that concept. But as it would relate to Dawkins and these men in general, we could speak of pillage progress. Pillage progress, the story of, well, in this case, Richard Dawkins, by his own admission, this is the progressive pillaging of all that is pious. He himself says that there was a time when I was walking something like the road of Christian faith and maybe making some progress on the way, but then something came into my life and I have ever since been pillaging and progressively working toward the breakdown of all that is Christian and pious to the degree that I would agree with Christopher Hitchens and others that say that God is the problem of everything. It's the God delusion. I gotta, it's a, it's a progressive pillaging of everything that is pious. And in this account, this pillage progress, Charles Darwin is the evangelist and he convinces Richard Dawkins to run from the city, not of destruction, but of biblical instruction. And he points to Dawkins and says, now you pass through, not the wicked gate, but the wicked gate of naturalism and prod your way forward on Lucifer Lane through the atheist bypass to the secular city. Well, what I'm pointing out to you by showing that this is a religious journey, that what you really are entering into is the temple of scientism. This is a very sensible statement that I'm making. Richard N. Williams, who is dealing with this phenomenon in a book entitled Science, the New Orthodoxy, defines scientism in the following manner. Only certifiably scientific knowledge counts as real knowledge. All else is mere opinion or nonsense. That isn't a rational position. That is a religious commitment. To say that if it comes through the scientific method alone, 
It is therefore valid. Any other form of understanding is nonsense. Robert K. Bolger, in another work dealing with these issues, entitled Kneeling at the Altar of Science, The Mistaken Path of Contemporary Religious Scientism, defines scientism in this way. The belief that what is real consists solely in the spatio-temporal world Naturalism is what he's saying. Solely in the spatio-temporal world that is revealed by the natural senses. That's scientism. Over against what you commonly think of as being just the scientific method, which is just weighing, measuring, calculating, counting, looking at this through a microscope. What you don't realize is that there are biases that come into this process all the time, and those biases are informed by presuppositional positions, which ultimately are equivalent to religious commitments when they stand in the place of believing in God. Because a holy text says that in the beginning God created. And so I want you to listen to these revealing admissions from evolutionists as we get very close to the conclusion of our study this afternoon. First, this from a leading British biologist by the name of DMS Watson. And this is again to manifest that these are religious commitments. And they effectively admit this when they're being a bit more truthful than sometimes many who are in this field often are. Watson says, Evolution is a theory universally accepted not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. That's his British use, and probably a more accurate, or certainly etymologically, a better use of incredible, meaning it's not credible. I say, from my American use of language, creation is incredible. But you know what he is stating? That the reason why evolutionary theory is universally accepted is because we just reject and will not even consider creation. Dear friends, that's his own statement. That is a religious commitment. I, I want your hearts to understand these are religious commitments. Don't let them steal the validity and the strength of your own religious commitments. They have them too. And they can't even support their positions with good science. Hear this remark from an Ashkenazi Jewish man, at least of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. I may not pronounce his name appropriately, but it's something like Richard, that part I can get right, Lewontine. I'll spell it for you, L-E-W-O-N-T-I-N. I neglected to ask my dear wife, who always helps me with the pronunciation of these sorts of things, how I should be stating it or saying it, and therefore I'm doing my best. I'm guessing it's something like Lewontine. But in any event, He was, until just last year, he passed away in 2021, he was a leading evolutionary biologist and mathematician, professor of biology at Harvard University, a collaborator with Stephen Jay Gould. And I'm going to read you something out of a book review. He was reviewing the 457-page book published by Random House from the author Carl Sagan, with the title of The Demon-Haunted World, 
the Christian demon haunted world over against, and the rest of his title is Science as a Candle in the Dark. And Richard Lewontine is writing a review of Carl Sagan's work that I just relayed to you. And he says this, and please listen to these remarks. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science, his emphasis here, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite, his emphasis, of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Every once in a while, Caiaphas prophesies something that is true. Every once in a while, Balaam speaks and says an illuminating remark. In this same article, Lewontine writes this, As to assertions without adequate evidence... The literature of science is filled with them, especially the literature of popular science writing. Carl Sagan's list of the, quote, best contemporary science popularizers includes E.O. Wilson, Lewis Thomas, and Richard Dawkins, each of whom has put unsubstantiated assertions of counterfactual claims at the very center of the stories they have retailed in the market. This was written in the New York Review of Books by an evolutionary biologist who has published widely in this field, but he is saying within his own field, I know what you're up to, Dawkins. I know what you're up to, Lewis Thomas. I know what you guys are up to. I'm a biologist. I read what you write, and much of it is nonsense, but you still sell it without shame. Richard Dickinson, another evolutionary biologist. Here's my final quote on this particular question. Richard Dickerson says, Science is fundamentally a game. It is a game with one overriding and defining rule. Rule number one, he then gives us, let us see how far and to what extent we can explain the behavior of the physical and material universe in terms of purely physical and material causes without invoking the supernatural. That's the game. That's the game. But you know what? If you step out of this game, 
then you can open the gates and let the king of glory come in. I can't deal at the moment because of the time constraints with some observations from a book entitled Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Society. But if I were to give you some quotations from that work, it would be showing you that once scientism is understood and recognized, and you realize you're in the temple of scientism, not a laboratory, so often. I'm not saying there isn't real scientists. I'm not even saying that Richard Dawkins can't do real science. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the nature of the battle is between religious commitments. On the battlefield, when Dawkins speaks and these other gentlemen speak, this is a religious battle. And when you realize that and you you deliver yourself from the mystification of scientism, then you can open the gates and let the king of glory come in. As I stated originally, I intended to close out this session this afternoon, but it appears that it would probably be wisest to take up some of the remaining remarks next time we gather to speak on this topic. And therefore, I think I'll put a pause at this point and just simply request that those who are interested in what we're sharing here avail yourself of the podcasts.